Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, if you are a new listener to this podcast, I might recommend you don't start with this episode. I know I've made it all the more attractive that you're like, why not? I'm going to start with this one. That's okay. But I highly recommend uh, episode 386 called Nosy. That could be a fun one to start with. And then come back to this one. And the reason I say it, and I'm, hello, regular listeners, I'm, I, uh, well, the thing I pride myself on on this podcast is, is of course, planning what I'm, the topics that I want to talk about every day. So and by planning, I mean, I write them in my uh, notes section of my iPhone and say, oh, talk about that uh, bumblebee I saw or, you know, whatever. And uh, today I was going to talk about comedy and how I see a lot of comedians getting back out there and I'm just like not feeling it, you know. And uh, a bigger topic, which is that, you know, I quietly stopped doing stand-up during COVID, and COVID was a great uh, reason not to, but I knew in my heart I was sort of uh, winding that part of my life down for now, and uh, probably do a little stand-up here and there. But um, in general, I just feel as if I'm gro- uh, changing and growing, and, and podcasting is, is something I love doing. And But anyway, so as I was talking about, you know, there's a paid version of this podcast. And as I was talking about that and, and talking about supporting artists you love, it sort of, I didn't mean to get into it just then. It just sort of went. And I, I kept talking about some things that might be sensitive to people. Um, I'm I'm anxious to put this episode out there for the new listener because oftentimes I can attract a new listener who's trying it out only to prove to themselves how much they hate me and then the harassment starts. So I'm asking you if you... Or that well, if you're that kind of person, you're going to harass me anyway. But um, every episode of this podcast is always from my point of view, and it's obviously a through line to every episode. But but at times, some episodes can stand out as wildly different, and I think this one, the first 45 minutes of this one, stands out as wildly different because I have a really honest exploration of something that I'm just now starting to learn to put into words, and so you're hearing version one of learning to put into words how I'm feeling about my industry. And uh, for some of you, it may be a surprise to hear that I'm not doing another comedy special. It may be a surprise to hear that I'm not touring. But for me, it's nothing new. I've known this for a couple of years. And so I don't want anyone to think this is like a pity party. And and something that I think I forgot to mention is I feel very empowered about sort of the way I looked around at comedy and went, I don't like this world very much. And there's a lot I love about it. And it's a big world. It's a big tent. And we've got a lot of bad and good in it. And I'm not taking my ball and leaving. I honestly just forget everything that I say in this episode about like the power structure and patriarchy and all that. It's just weirdly like stand-up isn't how I feel like artistically expressing myself lately. So I'm, I'm following that hunch and it might change and it might not. But then I do get into a deeper conversation like, well, as long as we're here, I was kind of looking at the structure of things. And you know what? I'm so over it. Now, again, it's, it's very inarticulate. It really is feelings. It's really feelings that you're hearing, thoughts off the top of my head. And I'm sure as I 
you know, sometimes you just have to break the seal and say something for the first time. And then you kind of get better, you perfect it, turns into your narrative, your story, you you understand it more. So this is, please, please understand, this is me taking some baby steps and trying to figure out what I'm feeling about my industry, my part in it, and my creative talents lately. And just being like, I don't know, I mean, I just hope no one thinks that I'm upset or angry and and those are both fine emotions. But the reason I don't want you to think that's because I, that's not how I was coming at this episode. Um, But, but again, because it was, I was so busy with exploring and finding the right words for the first time. It's like, I didn't remember to add the uh, tone in, right? It's like you take a photo and this intro is the filter. I'm filtering it by saying, maybe my tone wasn't all the way there, but, um, I'm I'm in, I'm happy. I'm in a good place. I feel empowered with my decision. And this podcast is something I deeply love, but I I don't know how many people who listen to this like know a lot about the comedy world and I'm just giving my perspective. So there you go and then at the uh after the 45 minute mark I talk about stupid things like my uh, breast exam doctor and the time that I pretended to be a psychic for some high school kids <laughs> and I talk about a toxic wellness self-help woman so there you go uh, but again if you're new maybe start with a different episode and get to know me a little bit and then this one won't be so uh, jarring okay enjoy well she's got a lot of things on her mind to talk about No Fun, the Jen Kirkman podcast, episode 388. Wow. I am Jen Kirkman. I am a comedian. My two comedy specials are on Netflix right now. They are called I'm Gonna Die Alone and I Feel Fine and Just Keep Living. I'm a, uh, a book author, a, an author of books. Uh, you can find them anywhere you buy books. Please buy them brand new or else uh, the sales don't count towards anything for me. <laughs> Um, I can barely take care of myself about not having kids and the dumb things people say to me about it. And I know what I'm doing and other lies I tell myself about and really not thinking that I know anything about how to go about my life. Stories of uh, travel, turning 40, dating, divorce, life, all kinds of things. So, okay, great. Um, This podcast, though, is not a book. It's not a comedy special. It's a one-sided conversation. I talk and you say Nothing, but that's fun. You need to get on with your day and whatever you're doing, you know? Take me along while you, I don't know, take a nap, try to go to sleep at night, wash the dishes, walk the dog, do whatever you do. And I am just that hopefully soothing voice that just talks to you while you do it. So, you know, this show is sometimes funny, sometimes serious, but always honest and real. This week, I will be talking about many things including comedians are getting back out there after COVID. I am not one of them. I feel weird about it. I don't want to. Follow up with a doctor who used to annoy me, and now she's totally different after COVID. It's like her small, like 
everything's different. The small talk's less annoying. A story where I played a psychic at a high school graduation, but it wasn't an acting gig. They wanted an actual psychic. Psychic. It's just a dumb story from the vault, the vault of my life that I thought would be kind of funny. And an article about this lifestyle coach who turned out to be kind of a toxic white woman. I'm, I'm a little fascinated with her. Uh, there's an article in the New York Times about this woman, Rachel Hollis, whom I knew nothing about in, until all of this. So I don't know. I might just give you my hot take on this story that's a, a month old. How's that? <laughs> that's why you come here. And uh, to those of you who are not even listening to this on the day it comes out, which is May 19th, you might be listening to this in like November of 2021 and going, well, it's seven months old to me. So who cares, right? Still interesting. I just spilled coffee and almost dribbled it on my white shirt. Oh, no, I did. And if you were a Patreon subscriber who had the video version, you could have watched that happen. That's right. So this is literally, literally my job. If everyone that listened to this podcast actually joined the Patreon at $5 a month, I would be a millionaire tonight. But usually as it goes, only about 2% of any social media followers or any listeners of free content uh, end up paying for extra stuff, which is, hey, not everyone can afford it. But those of you who can't, please keep in mind, this is my job. And so if you could join patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman, you will be getting a delightful four videos a month. And the video version of the podcast is always longer than this free audio version that you are hearing. In fact, today's episode that you are listening to right now, I've already talked to the Patreon subscribers straight to camera, told them a personal story about how I was called out on social media for polluting and I felt very defensive about it. And then I sort of like gave myself a therapy session on camera and came to a conclusion. I think it's kind of fun and interesting. And also, in addition to that video version, depending on how much you want to pay a month, you could pay 5, 10, 15, 20 a month, whatever. But with each level, you get bonus episodes, audio episodes. So I will tell you this month, my $10 a month subscribers, they have two 20-minute shorty bonus episodes about something going on in pop culture, uh, talking about Jen and Ben getting back together on one of those episodes. And on the one before that, I'm talking about Demi Lovato's frozen yogurt scandal. And then there is a bonus one-hour episode that, yes, the $10 level also gets. And I have read the script where I play all the parts um, of a Christmas made-for-TV movie that I wrote that did not end up getting made. So that is why I am free to read it to you guys. So, I mean, for 10 bucks a month, four videos with bonus content, two 20-minute shorties, and a one-hour bonus every month, always something new and different. This month, it's me reading a Christmas movie that I wrote and acting it out. So, I mean, come on, that is insane. And then $5 level, you get one 20-minute bonus, plus other stuff I've thrown at you. Like, I've put stand-up for every level, uh, has different uh, stand-up sets that I've done and taped off my phone on the road. And oh my God. And and if you join today, you get the entire last year's worth of bonuses that have already come out. It's not like you start today and then, you know, you have to wait for the bonuses to trickle in. You've got a backlog to go through of just fun. And I know you're all getting vaxxed and waxed and you're getting back out there, but you got to spend some time at home. I mean, 
you got to recharge at some point. So I'm there for you when you need something to watch because I know you watched everything already last year. And this is the way to see me. I am not doing another comedy special, not by my choice, but I am aging out of comedy. Go, Jen, you don't look old. You don't seem old. I'm a woman in comedy. And the streaming networks don't want anything to do with me. So you guys, it's on your shoulders to support the women in comedy that you love. Because with all this talk of cancel culture that male comics like to do, whenever they go on a racist rant and people simply say, that's racist, they say, you're canceling me. When in fact, they get more popular with every rape, with every racist rant, they get more popular. These guys are making tens of thousands a month on their Patreons. They are making hundreds of thousands a year touring. Meanwhile, they're claiming the whole time that they're canceled. Women and other people in comedy, LGBTQ, people that aren't white, we all have our own version of actually being canceled, where the business either doesn't bother with you in the first place, or it's just that much harder to get people to give a shit about your material. Or people just don't realize that you pay to keep the artists you love doing what they love or else a lot of people end up having to take other work and they burn the fuck out. But for some reason, there is this culture of dudes and it's dudes who are yelling racist obscenities. This whole culture, you may not know about it, but it's huge in comedy. And it hurts all of us because it's what people think comedy is. You know, there's this whole new scene in Austin, Texas. Joe Rogan moved there. All these other comedians in his group, this guy, Tony Hinchcliffe, he's the latest that went on a racist rant against an Asian comedian. It's going around Twitter. You got your Chris D'Elia's, your Brian Counts, those guys accused of sexual assault. They didn't go anywhere. They didn't go anywhere. I'm not saying what they should or shouldn't do, but I'm just telling you their fans have not gone anywhere and they are paying monthly. These guys are wealthy beyond imagine. And their points of view are still circulating out in the world at the clubs. Alleged rapists are still being booked at comedy clubs and they're allowed to be around the waitresses and the female audience members. If they really did rape, they just stopped. They're just not going to do that anymore. They're dominating comedy. And you know why? Because people go and pay for it. And then when that becomes the dominant culture, and that's the clips you see going around Twitter, and those are the stories you're hearing about, quote, comedians, everyone goes, oh my God, comedians are these horrible, filthy, despicable people. No, they're not. Those are the ones that are big right now. But what about the women and the gays and the trans and the people that aren't white? You're hearing about any of them? Maybe a few here and there, but overall you go, now comedy's gross. It's not actually, but the gross people are winning because their fans pay and good people tend to get exhausted by it and they just opt out of the whole thing. They're not going to, what are you going to spend your time looking to find comedians you like that aren't 
trash humans? No. You stick with what you like. And honestly, I find people only pay for stuff when they get absolutely like guilted or shamed into it, which I don't want to do to anybody, or if they're completely riled up for a cause like these guys' fans, you know? All these guys, I mean, only, uh, these these guys. So it's like, that's just kind of how it works. I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, I just keep plugging along, doing my thing. But, you know, it's hard to uh, do a podcast and say, oh, there's this fun paid version. I'm on video. I'm doing this. If you make it sound too easy breezy, people just kind of tune out and they go, well, it sounds like she does this other fun thing. That's great. I've seen her on TV. She writes for TV. She's rich. She's all set. She's good. No, no, no. This is my job, mostly. And uh, yeah, I am my own small business and I'd love to invite people to come along. But I feel I have to get real and really explain, like, if this shit means anything to you, you got to support it if you can. Because I've had quite a fucking few years and you might go, is this a complaining hour? And someone new is listening like she sucks. I don't give a shit. This is what the podcast is sometimes. You can go. I have 387 episodes. If you want to make a judgment on what this podcast is based on this opening 10 minutes, go ahead. I'm going to get you anyway. But I'm just saying. You know, I ride that fine line. You know, we're, we're in this uh, capitalist kind of uh, aspirational culture. And a lot of times, the better you're doing, the more you just seem like a winner, the more people are attracted to that, right? You can't be like, well, hey, guys, I really need your support. Sometimes that's a turnoff. So sometimes it seems like the only people that get supported are the people that are like claiming to be canceled. So sometimes I'm like, should I keep it real and like actually tell people like, the kind of shitty last few years it's been where like I basically, you know, had to kind of opt out of comedy in a way because of what like it's not viable anymore because of the streaming platforms not um, working with me based on nothing. I mean, based on nothing, I mean, you can't get an answer. Out of but once Netflix doesn't work with you anymore and you, the other streaming platforms go, wait a minute, we know Netflix is the best and they pay the most and they're the most successful. You're telling me, Jen Kirkman, that you want to try to do a special with us, Amazon, HBO Max, because you're the one deciding not to do Netflix anymore? Don't bullshit us. See, once one network says we don't want to do specials with you anymore and doesn't give you a reason, you can't go anywhere else because it's like showbiz is like the popular kid at school. They, they're they not going to put their tray down next to you after you've been rejected. And they know you've been rejected. You can spin it any way you want. So it's tough, you know, it's, it's not, I, listen, I'm not entitled to have 50 million Netflix specials. It's just usually the way it goes. If you become a successful comedian who does have two Netflix specials that are good, you get to join the arc of history where your guy peers are who then get to do more. And the more you're on there and the newer the special is, the more it's promoted and then you get a bigger audience and then you can tour. I mean, that's the goal. If the specials are just on there and they're old, it's doesn't, it's like the momentum has stopped. And I, I, not in an entitled way. I just didn't see that coming because things were going so well with the specials. 
And I was on the road preparing to do a new one. And then Netflix was just like, no. And it just got really hard. They had a change in uh, the, the booker, you know, and that it's like, that's, that's that, you know, there are gatekeepers in this business. Uh, and sometimes you just, the gate shuts and you go, fuck. Well, I hope everyone comes with me that liked my stuff because I'm over here now. You know, and, and honestly, I'm not, I'm not having a bad time. I love my podcast and I love my Patreon. This isn't like, oh, I guess I'll do this. I, I mean, I kind of love it more than going on the road right now. I guess I could go on the road if I felt like it, but I don't want to. It's actually one of the reasons I'm not is because truly it's just too unpredictable. And forget, I'm not even talking about COVID. Before COVID, it was like, I don't know if people are coming. You know, I'm not the comic that puts tickets on sale and they sell out in five minutes. So I would show up in cities going half the tickets are sold. I don't know if the other half is coming. If they don't come, I lose money. It's not exactly a stressless way to live when you're in your mid 40s. <laughs> I was just like, you know what? Like that's a young person's game to like possibly not make money at your job, even after you've traveled to get to the job. So I wanted a little more security. And so for me, going on the road became due to my lack of national exposure without a, a new special, it became uh, too unpredictable. And that's just not that's not how I want to live. That's too uh, it's just too much of a roller coaster. Right. So um for now, if I end up doing gigs again, I'll, I'll do them in just like two or three major cities, you know, where I know I have a big enough fan base that even if half of that fan base can't come that night, that there's plenty of other people. That's kind of how it works. It's a numbers game, right? So if you have a million fans in San Francisco, if you do some shows there, probably 100,000 of them would be able to come. I don't have those kind of numbers. So maybe I have 10,000 fans in San Francisco on any given night that I decide to come. Maybe only 500 to 1,000 are able to come. That's like the best case scenario. It's usually less than that. So it's like that, you know, that is, those are the big, there are a few big cities. I won't say the names of them because it's irrelevant to this conversation, but where I I can bank on um, doing okay if I go there, but if, only three times a year, that's not... <laughs> That's enough to pay my bills for a month or something. So it's 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 not a, a viable career right now for me. So now I I guess I just started talking. My God, this was going to be something I talked about later in the show. But I guess it's it's uh, people keep saying can't, uh, can't wait for you to start touring again. COVID and I was like, I guess I just sort of used COVID as a cover that I was going to stop touring anyway. I'm, you know. I've already worked. It's like you guys are finding out about it for the first time, but I've already worked through this for the past couple of years, like in therapy and stuff where I'm like, this is not viable anymore. And yeah, it's heartbreaking. But like, I I can't, you can't just keep pushing through. I mean, not at my age. You know, I've had success, great success. Uh, not the financial success I've owned, but I've had great success. I had specials that were acclaimed. New York Times wrote a good review. I am I am well thought of. I have good relationships in the other industry I'm in, which is uh, I sometimes write for TV. And so, you know, I, I listen, I it's all just plotted along nicely. It just didn't blow up, which is totally fine. But blowing up is the only way to have that kind of security. So when you don't have that kind of security, you kind of have to take an honest look and say, how do I want to spend the second half of my life? I mean, I'll be 47. I'm going into middle age. You know, I don't want to be pushing and plugging touring the way that a 25-year-old can. 
So I really love podcasting. So I have this podcast. I have a podcast coming out in August called Anxiety Bites, where I will be interviewing all kinds of experts, whether they're neuroscientists or meditation experts, or even just other artists or psychiatrists or, you know, whatever. Um, And I'll be trying to just normalize the conversation around anxiety. Hopefully it helps some people. Hopefully it entertains others, enlightens others. I love podcasting. I love doing this. You know, the more listeners I get. Now, I know you hear ads on this podcast. And you probably think I'm making millions. Well, well, no, no, no. It depends on how many listeners you have. You get a small percentage of something or other. And, you know, if you get 10,000 or less listeners, you, you're not making more than 100 bucks a month on ads. You know, it's really not what you guys think. But with more listeners, you get 20,000 listeners, 50,000, 100,000. Well, now we're talking. Make a little more money in ads. Could be even be like a, a 30-year salary. So it's like, I love doing this, you know, and I sit around going, more people find it every day. I mean, this episode, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen. I, I this, is, this is what happens with this podcast, though. Like, I couldn't stop this train of conversation. I just fucking couldn't stop it. I just started going into it. I was going to start with something totally different. But you turn on the mic and I guess my feelings just came out. So anyway, you know, I, I'm not planning on touring. I, there's a lot that has sort of broken my heart, but opened it, if that makes sense. So I'd love to be able to just claim comedy clubs, book rapists, and I don't want to perform there and, you know, act like I'm, uh, taking a stand, but I'm not, I, I don't want to do a comedy club tour anymore. It, it was a lot of work. I did it in 2019. I, I didn't. I didn't overall enjoy it. Of course, I always enjoy the moments on stage, but the, but not all of them. So the, the way the comedy club scene works is uh, the comedy club dictates your schedule. So you must perform five shows a weekend, Thursday to Friday to Saturday. A lot of these clubs are big. You got three to 500 seats a show. So let's say 500 a show, 500 seats a show times five, that's 2,500 people. Now, if I had 2,500 fans in any given city that were definitely coming that night, I would just do one night in a theater, make good money, get home. That, that's what I would like to do. But if 2,500 people end up coming at all to the comedy club, which usually they don't, you might get 200 because these, these clubs are overbuilt. 500 is too many, but 200 a night is pretty reasonable. 200 a show, I mean. So let's say you perform for 1,000 people that weekend Odds are 700 of them don't know you. And you don't get into this business hoping to spend your life performing for people that don't know you. Because that's that's what a lot of people say makes you a real comic. Well, sure, when you're first starting out, no one knows you. You've got to make people laugh. And it's a great way to find out organically if uh, your joke works. But see, even that, that, that notion that comedy is this meritocracy, well, White men have always been able to say that funny's funny. You know, get up on stage if you can't make them laugh right away. Well, sure. But what about their unconscious biases? What if an Indian woman gets on stage? What if a woman that's white gets on stage? What if a lesbian gets on stage? What if a trans person gets on stage? I mean, are you going to tell me that funny is funny when the audience for culturally for decades has been trained to just listen to the rhythm and the jokes and the points of view of straight white men? That, that has been what comedy mostly is. So you're going to tell me that if this Indian woman gets on stage and isn't funny, that it's 100% her fault? I don't know about that. 
See, because I know that one of the examples I always use is that women in comedy, we all had similar bits because we talk about our life as women. We all had similar bits. I remember, you know, going around the comedy circuit in New York City. We all had bits about sexual harassment and how dating is scary because, you know, men tend to murder women. I don't mean like on date. You know what I'm saying? It's like we're afraid of men. We cross the street if we're alone in an alley. We're taught as little girls, you know, watch out for the guy in the van with the candy. And, you know, we carry our keys in our hand because we might get attacked. And, you know, overall, right, to uh, protect ourselves against men. But then if you're straight, that's who you date. So we all had bits about that. Audiences usually didn't laugh. Now, is it because we weren't funny? I doubt that. A lot of us went on to uh, write for late night shows and be successful comedians. But it was back then when women's voices weren't totally part equally of the comedy culture. That kind of topic wasn't talked about in a mainstream way. It was too real for people. They didn't want to hear women talking about their own experiences. They didn't want to, that this is way before me too, you guys. This is, this is 15, 20 years ago. So if you're not getting laughs, you might quit. It might break your spirit. And it might not be your fault. So then Louis C.K., who was harassing women, he does a bit on his, one of his many comedy specials. I think he was doing this one at Madison Square Garden. This was maybe five, six years ago. And he's doing a bit about how man is woman's greatest predator and that dating a man must be like, you know, you know he, he posits it for men, straight men, to try to understand. Imagine if, if you're, you had to date lions and everyone you let in your car, I hope he's nice. You know, it's a great bit. People were fucking dying laughing. And every female comic I knew, including myself, said that kind of sucks, though, because that's our story to tell. But no one wanted to hear it from us. So that's just a really good example of. I have been raised in an industry that was run by men. Frequented by men, customers, and. A lot of the tent poles of comedy and the mythology around comedy is part of patriarchy. And I'm like 46 years old and just realizing it when I had a year off during COVID. I'm realizing all of the mythology about comedy. You had, maybe you guys don't know this, but guy comics will always, you know, running around, um, you know, they, they run into a, a comedy club. I need 10 minutes of stage time and they, what's called bump all the other comedians on the show. I got to go up now, even if you were scheduled to go on and they go do, and then they run to another club and do 10 minutes. There's this notion that you've got to try out your material six times a night and six Six different clubs and maybe for some people but that's the mythology right hustle 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 well not everyone can hustle 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 you know those men tend to marry women that aren't also in comedy and the women are home with the kids the guys get to do whatever they want now what if you're the woman with the kid and you're in comedy hustle 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 go 50 places a night well gee i wonder why that architecture was set up. Gee, I wonder why there's a late show at 11 o'clock. Men don't want to go home to their wives and kids. I mean, just generalizing, I'm talking about comedy at the inception and how the structure of clubs has not changed in 40 years. You perform on late shows for drunk people that can get violent. Gee, that's fun for women and people that aren't white or straight. 
white men love that challenge. It's like, because it, what else is hard for them? <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, they love it. I hate it. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to opt out of being told that unless I can make the guy in the MAGA hat at the 11 o'clock show laugh, I'm not funny. And by the way, I do make that guy laugh. But you know what? It's not worth the effort or my soul or my fear. I like to just perform for my fans, not because it's easier and I don't want to try to be funny. They're my fans. Why, why do people act like performing for your fans makes you any less um caring about your work. These people are the ones that will keep me employed the rest of my life. You bet your ass I'm going to do a good show and keep writing new material and not just resting on the fact that they're happy to see me. Are you fucking crazy? It actually should be the other way around. It, so there's this notion in comedy that if you have a fan base and you just perform for them and you don't do comedy clubs where... Um, so so how you go, well, what do you mean, Jen? Well, let me put it this way. Let's say I do a theater in... in uh, Sacramento. Nobody who doesn't know who I am is just going to go, oh, I'll go to this theater and see this comedian. But they would go to a comedy club because sometimes comedy clubs give away free tickets or they just know like the structure of a comedy club is like there's three comedians in one night or they're just like used to the club. That's a thing. People go to comedy clubs all the time going, I like comedy, not realizing that that's like saying I like music and and not like going to see a particular style of music. Like if you like jazz, you're going to go look for jazz. You're not just going to walk by a club that says music and walk in and go, this isn't jazz, but that's what people do to comedy. I like comedy. Now, to them, that could mean Kevin James jokes, which is fine. I like Kevin James is funny. But then, then they walk in, see me. Well, then they go, this isn't comedy. It's like, no, this is also comedy. It's just not the comedy that you like. So don't come, you know, but they sit down and then they ruin the show. So I'm done with that. And and in the mythology of what men do when they talk about comedy is they uh, they say, well, I'm not a Jen, you're not a real comedian then. And I used to internalize. Oh, I guess I'm not. I guess this fan base I built up, none of it's real. You know, you feel like it's almost made to um, erase anyone that's doing well, unless if they're doing well outside the structure that the men for centuries have put in place for centuries. You know what I'm saying? You know, these these late nights, I, I, I did do all every time I do a morning radio show, I have to go in and and uh, the, the DJ hits on you and sexually harasses you at seven in the fucking morning. And then they say things like, why are you up so early? Comedians sleep late. Well, not really. If you're done with the show by 1230 at night and you're back in bed by one. Yeah, sometimes hard to fall down asleep. So yeah, like 2 a.m. So on the road. Yeah, I mean, you might not fall asleep till 2 a.m. And it is weird to have to get up at 6 a.m. to do radio the next day. But that's like only if you have to do radio the next day and if you had a late show the night before. In general, the lifestyle of a comedian does not mean that you can't ever get up early. I mean, I could do 10 minutes at the improv in Hollywood at 8 o'clock, be home by 8.30, go to bed at 10, get up at 6 a.m. and write a script. And that's what women do because we never thought thought we could be comedians for a living because there weren't many of us. So we all had other skills. We wrote scripts, we acted. So a lot of us do get up early. And then, but the male culture is you stay out late, you drink, you know, they're trying to get laid. And the ones who aren't are trying to avoid their wife and kids. Sometimes both. That's the male culture that, that we don't step back and go, that's where that came from. So every morning radio show I do, even from my home in Los Angeles, hey, why are you up so early? Because I'm a functioning adult. 
who's very talented and has a lot of projects. I've been doing comedy 25 years. Do you think it is still fun for me to stay up till 2 a.m. and get drunk? Do you think I want to get drunk with the audience? No offense to the audience, but I got straight men in my audience who think if I'm getting drunk with them, that they're hitting on me. Well, guess who doesn't mind getting drunk with an audience that wants to fuck them? Straight men. See, the whole culture. And, I, and I'm sitting here during, during COVID, and I'm, and I'm looking at these guys who are literally... Two guys got got exposed as sexual assaulters. One of 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 you know uh, teen, teenage girls. One accused of rape, and and they're still performing all, all over the country. And I look at these clubs that let these guys perform and go. Do you give a fuck about your female audience members? And these days, it is women who who make the plans. They they book the tickets to the comedy show. They bring their boyfriends. To, you know. And and listen, these guys have women fans too, and I that breaks my heart, but. I don't want to be part of this. I don't want to be part of this world. I, there's no world anymore. The, the, the world is changing in so many ways. I don't have to do comedy the way that it's been told to me that I have to do it. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not playing the fucking game. If I only want to do three cities a year and sit on a stool talking off the top of my head, then if I think that's comedy, that's fucking comedy. And if you like it, great. Come on, on, come on along. I think comedy and and being an entertainer is this podcast, is even this ridiculous rant you're hearing. I, I opted out of this club game. I, I can't do it. It makes me too unhappy. You know? But I see people back out there. The, 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 I, I just don't relate. I just don't. I, there's something going on where comedy has kind of just become less appealing to me. Um, and I don't really care which came first, the chicken or the egg. Was it, you know, knowing there's no new special to work towards? No. But I mean, honestly, no. I just, I noticed in 2018, I was like, I'm not like craving to, and maybe I got healthier. I mean, I hate the assumption that comedians aren't healthy, but the last three years I've worked on myself so much that it actually, my brain is, I have less desire to go out on stage and declare who I am and what I'm into. I I, I don't know, you know, but I, I don't necessarily think that's true. I mean, I think, look, if someone said, Jen, uh, I'm God, I'm coming down. You can do 10 shows a year and make a million dollars per show. Just talk about whatever you want on stage. Would you do that for a living? And be like, uh, fuck yeah. It's not like I hate being on stage. I just, something's happening where I'm fine not to be out and about with all the comedians. I'm fine not even to like identify as a comedian. I'm just sort of like, huh, I wonder what's next for me. And I'm excited about it. And I think that excitement can only come because I wasn't really making money in stand-up in the past two years. Does that make sense? So it's not like I'm sitting here trying to figure out another way. I did figure out another way. I have the Patreon. I I write part-time for TV. You know, so it's... Uh, yeah, it, it, it's not... Um, I've already sort of lost that job a couple of years ago for just talking about financially. Now, identifying as a comedian is totally different. You can do that for free. You can perform anywhere. I just don't feel like it. But it's funny, like, so COVID, you know, I was going to say it's over, but COVID uh, restrictions are over in a lot of cities in terms of like comedy clubs are allowed to be open again. Uh, 
a lot of places in LA, I was actually surprised, are only letting people in who are vaccinated or have a negative test. Um, I'm a little iffy on the negative test, as we know those aren't always accurate, and you can get a test, and two days later, you know what I'm saying, you can still contract COVID right after your test, but whatever. And I honestly just was surprised um, that like 100% of comedians I know, and even ones I don't know that well, but I just see on social media are just like, literally the second everything reopened, like back up there on stage. And I was like, huh? Because I don't know if you guys know this, but but if you live in New York, you live in LA and you're a comedian and you do one of the clubs and you just do like a 15, 10 to 15 to 20 minute spot, you get paid maybe. I mean, even the most famous people, even, uh, you, you know, it, it's a, it's, you do it for, to work out stuff and for the, the, applause, which is totally fine. I mean, but you don't get paid. I mean, you might get paid 20 to 50 bucks. It's not what people do for a living, you know, um, going on the road is where you make the living. So these people are actually out and about on stage for fun. And that's where I'm like, oh, I don't relate to that. I don't find this fun right now. And I think also like I just, you know, you look at the comedians that are accused of rape and you look at the comedians that are accused of sexual assault and you look at the other comedians who aren't bad dudes, but who still do shows with them. They'll still share a stage with them. They don't really care. And I'm like, ah, see, I can't do it. I can't do it. So anyway, I, I yeah, I mean, I'm just not uh, in a place right now where stand up is the first thing on my mind. Now, I did uh, 2018, 2019, I toured with a, a brand new hour of material about, uh, you know, generational stuff. And and if I don't get that material out soon, it's it's going to expire. Um, So, you know, I will probably get it out there probably through doing an album or something. So I know I'm not done, but I'm done for now. And even if I record an album, I still might just like enjoy. And then I don't know, you know, um, I just don't crave it like I used to, but I think that's totally fine too. You know, you pick a job when you're 21 and you think you want to do that for your life and then you aren't 21 anymore and you go, well, I kind of realized what the business actually is. I did have some success with it and, you know, I'm interested in other things in life and to be honest, listen, give me a bag of money, you'll never see me again. Travel around Europe. What's what's your amount, your drop dead amount to like never work again and feel totally secure and like have everything you want, set up your friends and family, have a savings that you can live on the rest of your life. What's your what's your okay, I'm giving you this money and you can never work again. You just have to go enjoy your life and like do projects that interest you, but you cannot earn money again. So pick your number accordingly. You might go, I just need a million. Really? You're 25 years old? You're fucked. You know? <laughs> so mine is um, 30 million. I know that doesn't seem, I know that seems ridiculous. Jen, you're 46 years old. You mean to walk away from jobs, you, you need 30 million to feel financially secure. Should you live to 80, 90, 100? Yeah. Yes, I do. So, God, even when I'm saying it, I'm starting to stress out like, well, that's only a million a year. And then what if I'm 70, you know, and I want to buy a house and I want to pay off my family's debts and buy them houses. And, you know, and I want to, you know, travel a little and put some in the 
some kind of something that earns interest. I mean, maybe my in, maybe my money will just make money. Maybe maybe ten million I can put away, and that just keeps making money for the rest of my life. Oh, see, I'm stressed out, you guys. That's not thirty million is not enough money. Fuck. Email me. I seem fun at gmail.com. What is like really take some time and think about it. What is your okay? If I have this amount of money, I'll never work again and I'll feel good. And then tell me what you would do with the money. I seem fun at gmail.com. So the last episode of every month is listener email episode where I have thrown out a million topics over the month and I hear from all of you. So please send that to me. Uh, and that would be great. Hopefully it'll get read on uh, one of the episodes the, the last month of May. If not, it'll at the very least get on by the last uh, last week of June, the last month of May. Hello? The last week of May, last week of June. I'm almost done with the episode and I haven't even begun. This is the weirdest episode. I guess I had some feelings. I'm in my feelings, as they say. Hey guys, if you want to support food banks in the city of Seattle and Memphis, visit jenkirkman.com, click shop. The link will also be in the show notes. It's all just one big link. If you want to buy my books, my albums, the merchandise, it's all just one link in the show notes. But the merchandise, I work with a great company called T Public. Every sale pays an independent designer and I get a cut of those sales. Now the cut that I get I donated 100% to food banks in America. In 2020, I donated it all to healthcare workers uh, to get them the PPE that they needed. We were, I say we, but it is, it's all of us. We were able to donate over $10,000 in 2020. Again, I kept not a penny. In 2021, we've already sent about uh, $4,000 to different food banks all over America. So, uh, the sales in April were a little lower, and I think that's because actually there were so many thirty-five uh, percent off sales in the store. I think that just the you guys bought a lot of stuff, but the earnings wasn't it much as much because of the discounting. So I'm just extending uh, the Seattle and May food bank gathering money for them uh, through May as well. So at the end of May, I will tally up April and May's sales of my merchandise in the merchandise store, and I will. On June 1st, write a check to the Seattle and Memphis food banks. That's not the names of them, but um, and I will post it on my social media at Jen Kirkman on Twitter and at Jen Kirkman on Instagram so that you can see that I am not just making this up. And then uh, again, that is uh, my merchandise store. You can get things, you know, if you like the logo of this podcast. It, you can get it as a mug or a magnet for your fridge. You can get things. I have a fun new design that's a, a little smiley face with a squiggly mouth like, Ugh! and it says anxious AF, meaning anxious and fun. And you can get that as a t-shirt or a notebook. I've got, I'm just a soul trapped in a body, which is something I said in one of my stand-up specials. And you can get that as, you know, a travel mug or a regular mug or a phone case. Uh, everything that, every design that, that you buy in my store can be made into pins and magnets and stickers and t-shirts and tote bags and pillows and tank tops and hoodies and sweatshirts and, and the whole thing. So find a design you like and then find the product that you want. There you go, all in the show notes. So, man, this is a weird episode. I'm sorry, um, but I'm keeping it as it is because, I again, this is, this is what it is sometimes. So, okay, so I don't know if I told you guys. I went to... Uh, I take care of my breast health. 
I've had a, uh, God, in my early, late 20s, I had a lump removed in my breast, totally benign. But um, I've taken the gene test and I don't have the family gene for breast cancer. My sister, who had breast cancer and survived, also doesn't have the gene. So that was weird. So, you know, I still, I keep up on my breast health. Because I have dense breasts. I think every woman does. I, like, I don't know anyone that hasn't said that their doctor says they do. So dense means that uh, you get a mammogram. It doesn't exactly tell you everything that's going on. Some people, they want to also do an ultrasound. So I have this uh, boob doctor that I go to. Get my mammogram. And then I go visit her and she gives me the results. And we talk and she gives me a breast exam with her hands. Don't get all hot and bothered out there, guys. Come on. This is medical, you pervs. And then she'll make a recommendation for me to get an ultrasound six months later just to make sure. So this woman is the most fucking annoying woman I've ever met in my goddamn life. I dread my once a year or twice a year appointment with her. And there have been times two years ago there was an issue an issue with my tissue in my left breast. And I had to get an ultrasound and then I had to get an even more ultrasoundier ultrasound after that one. It was like more specific. And it was painful. They press in that thing on you. And my left boob, the the exact place I had the surgery 20 years ago was hurting. And it was scar tissue. But the thing that was weird was the scar tissue had already cleared up. And it came back. And I was like, is that normal? I mean, that worried me. What's in there? So I'm trying to ask her, you know, she's like, oh, you're going to need a more specific ultrasound. I feel something in there. I said, I know. And she said, it's probably scar tissue. And I said, yeah, but here's the thing. Two years ago, via the ultrasound, you had declared the scar tissue was gone. So why is it back? And she looks at me and she goes, do you book your own hotel when you go on the road? I go, what? No, no, no. What, what is this? What, what are you, Charlie Rose? What is this, a morning DJ? I, I'm asking you about my boob. I got questions about my boob here. Why is it hurt? You want to know about the road. No, I'm asking you the questions. Because what do you do if an audience doesn't laugh? I go, they're, they're always laughing. What do you do? Ask me this. What do I do when my doctor won't tell me what's wrong with my tits? Because she's asking me about fucking comedy. Who cares about comedy? Do you know the most boring thing to talk about? is comedy. You know that because I just talked about it for 45 minutes and fucking bored you. You're not even listening anymore. I am talking to no one. But on, I mean, for comedians, it's like, you know, I don't know. I don't care. If, it's just like, I don't know. It, read a book about it. Don't, don't. It's not, not fun for me. Can we talk about something else? I don't like feeling like I'm being interviewed. And no matter what you say, it's like the, nothing ever satisfies someone when they ask you about comedy. It's like an endless whole. It's like they're they're doing heroin in front of you and they're just not getting the hit they want. They're like, do you ever get heckled? Yeah. Is it bad? No. They just kick them out. I mean, I don't like it, but do you change up your material after getting heckled? No. Because then the fans in the audience will be pissed. Oh. Then they try to get another hit. 
Where do you get your ideas? I don't know. Where do you get yours? Things just fall in your head. I don't know. What do you mean? I don't know. Where do ideas come from? Jesus Christ, take a philosophy class. It's monotonous. And you go, Jen, come on. No, that's literally all people do to you all day long as a performer. So I was fucking dreading this appointment. Oh, turns out that scar tissue is gone again now. So uh, who knows? I was dreading. That was a one time I just to get her off the goddamn road talk. You know, she goes, are you traveling a lot this year? And I said, uh, no. And then she got concerned. How do you make money that I said, oh, well, I'm, I write for a TV show right now. Oh, what it anything I would know? Now, how the fuck would I know if you would know it? What do I what am I a Nielsen ratings box in your living room? I don't know what you know or don't know. But at the time, I mean, I'm still I part time write for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And it was uh, at the time of this conversation with this woman. It was the first year that the show had come out and it had won the Emmy and the Golden Globe. Now, I'm not bragging. That's not because of anything I did. That, that's the genius of my bosses that that write the show. But I'm just saying it was uh, definitely talked about. It was definitely like even if you didn't watch the show, you'd probably heard of it because it won the Emmy and the Globe. And also, don't forget, I live in Los Angeles, land of billboards. And billboards go up during award season because the uh, network buys the billboard and says, for your consideration, because they know the Emmy voting and Golden Globe voting people are driving around. So the four-year consideration, please vote for two and a half men, right? So this, this woman is a doctor in Beverly Hills. Now, I don't care if she lives in Montana. She's driving by billboards on the way to work. She has seen a billboard at the very least for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, especially within a month of the conversation. Anything that I would know, I said, uh, it's called the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. What channel is it on? Amazon. Oh, I don't, I don't do all that. I don't even watch TV. Well, why'd you fucking ask me? She says, I've never heard of it. And then she gets that tone that when she hasn't heard of something, it must mean it's not very good or not, um, you know, I'm probably just scraping by there, you know. It's like any TV show you write for, whether it sucks or one person knows it or five million people know it, the Writers Guild employs you. So you get the same pay no matter what. So it's like, don't feel bad for anybody unless, you know, it just depends on how many weeks a year they work. So, you know, I don't work 52 weeks a year, even when I'm full time on Mrs. Maisel, it's 20 weeks. So yeah, I mean, no one's getting rich over here. But I'm saying like, you know, if you meet someone that writes for TV, if you haven't heard of their show, that don't affect their paycheck. You know what I'm saying? So don't worry about it. So she goes, uh, well, that's good for you. And and who knows? You, it could build to something more. I'm like, um, yeah, no, it won the Emmy and the Golden Globe this year. So it is the, it's the, it's the more that you think it, my career should build. To. <laughs> I mean, I don't, again, I don't get a statue. I don't get an Emmy or Golden Globe. But like she was acting like maybe writing on this piece of shit will get you a better job. And I'm like, no, I have the good job. <laughs> so she goes, uh, Oh, well, I just don't keep up with things. And I'm like, yep, I don't either. But I just work on the show that won it. That's why I know. I'm not obsessed with awards. And then she starts going into this rap about how, like, are awards even fair? Because how do you know the best show is actually winning? I, I go, I don't know. Yeah, I get it. 
So these are the conversations I'm having with this woman who's who's basically there to make sure that she can detect cancer. You know, I'd like to talk about cancer when I'm there. And maybe she needs a break from it. But that's not my job, you see. I'm off the clock. She got to talk about cancer when I'm there because that's why I'm there. So I, I got the appointment and I'm dreading it. I honestly was in such a bad mood last week that I rescheduled the appointment. And I told my favorite lie. Blah, 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 breast center. Hi, it's Jen Kirkman. Um, you know, I can't come in today. I got the second shot yesterday and I don't know why I scheduled this appointment the day after. I guess I just didn't think I'd have symptoms, but I'm not feeling very well and I don't want to drive in. Can I come in next week? Okay, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't get the fucking second shot. I'm lying. I'm lying. There are so many people in my life, if they all meet, they're going to go, how many second shots did Jen Kirkman get? It is my go-to cancel excuse. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, but honestly, that's why I canceled. I was too in a bad mood to deal with her ridiculous small talk about my career. I, I really was just like, maybe there'll be another day when I feel more mentally healthy. So that day came, that was a couple of days ago. So I go in and I'm like, okay, I'm ready. And because of COVID, you um, talk about different things now. Like they they do this thing, as I found out later because I got the a copy of the report, they do sort of a mental health evaluation while they're talking to you. So she's asking questions like th that I actually don't mind answering, like, how was your year? But it's not about career or jokes or comedy or jumps. Like, did you, you know, were you stressed this year? Were you, you know, and I'm like, so we're now we're having a conversation about feelings. I'm, I'm into it. But it's because she's secretly doing that kind of evaluation. And then, uh, you know, so then it's kind of quiet. And I'm like, oh my God, she's not asking me about my job. This is amazing. We're just talking about what we should be talking about, which is my breast health. But when that was done, and, you know, she's still feeling around and doing her thing. And I said, uh, I bet you've heard from a lot of people this year that um, they haven't worn a bra in a year. And, you know, and she's like, oh, yeah. And she tells me a story that's, you know, mildly amusing about, um, you know, the women coming in that nor normally shave their armpits that are just like, fuck it, I'm not shaving anymore. And, and uh, this woman came in who's uh, growing out her armpit hair and she and her sisters are having a competition to see who can grow theirs the longest. And they all get on Zoom and lift up their arms. And listen, I'm, in, I'm enjoying this story. Like now, of course, she's doing that thing that, that's hard for comedians where she's like dying laughing. She thinks it's like the funniest thing in the world. And I'm like, well, I don't think anything's funny. So, <laughs> but okay, but I don't care. I'm not judging it. I'm just like, I'm glad she's happy. And I'm glad we're not talking about my job. So then at the end of the appointment, she's like, so you're good. Everything good. Are you, you know, you're vaccinated now and you're, you know, and, and what does that look like with your job? And I said, oh, well, I've been working over Zoom because in my industry, they they don't let people in the rooms together yet. So it's it's been great. I've been able to do some work and, you know, I didn't mention the podcast or anything like that. And she goes, what are you, you're, you're a writer? Is that right? And I said, yeah, yeah. She goes, oh, what are you wor working on? And I was like, oh, here we go. And I said, oh, um, it's the same job I have, uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Mazel. She goes, oh my God, that's my favorite show. <gasps> you write on that? Oh my God, it's my favorite show. It is so witty. And then it was like, my status exalted because she knew the show. And I was like, oh, yeah. She's like, I just found it this year. Oh my God, where's it been all my life? My favorite show. 
And then, of course, well, I have nothing to do with the, the brilliant wit of the show. I'm just a hired hand that helps with a line or two here and there for, for, for all of the characters, you know. But uh, please, it's all my bosses. Well, tell them they're amazing. And I go, yes, I will, you know. But I was like, isn't that funny? When people, it, it like proved my theory that when people don't know something, they literally just can't accept that it might be just a window to a world they're not in. They, they, they immediately go to like some weird pity place. I'm sure you all experience this in your jobs. Um, and again, if you want to email me, I seem fun at gmail.com, whatever job you do, if people who don't know what it is act as though you aren't where, you know, like if, if you're like, I study rocks and someone's like, well, maybe that'll lead to studying um, mountains. And you're like, nope, it's actually, it is what it is. And it's uh, yes. Well, I already do study mountains as well. Just get out of here. Uh, I seem fun at gmail.com. I love, like, I am a nosy as shit. As you know, a couple episodes ago, I called the episode nosy because it was a listener email episode. I love to hear about other people's lives. Please entertain me with your emails. We will read it. We, who is this we? We will read it on the last week of every month. Listener last week. So now this breast doctor, I'm curious what's going to happen when I go back in six months. Kind of, you know, I just, I like these conversations that COVID has enabled. I mean, obviously I wish the whole thing never fucking happened, but I'm just telling you that's my like mini silver lining. Oh, boring myself. I know for some reason I was thinking about a, This story. So I, my other podcast, Anxiety Bites, which again comes out in August, I've been banking a lot of interviews in advance. You know, have a lot of episodes in the can, as they say. And I interviewed a uh, psychologist who specializes in uh, college student mental health. And, you know, I was talking about how I used to make fun of the notion that like, who cares about graduation? But then I realized that, well, it's a time to say goodbye to teachers. It's time to say goodbye to friends. And, you know, as I realized during this pandemic that, and, and with anything that's like really stressful, whether for me, I found the presidential election very stressful. I found the insurrection on January 6th very stressful. So whenever I'm too caught up in the world and politics and things of that nature that I mostly can't control, I, I look to my life to be the solve, right? So the bomb, it's like, how are my friendships doing? How's my relationship to family? How are my hobbies? How are my interests? How's just my free time? How's my enjoyment of reading? You know, my life has to be bigger than it is in that moment. You know, I can't spend six hours a day watching the news. You got to diversify and do things that are good for the soul, right? And so I realized, oh, well, yeah, I mean, these kids, you know, graduation is kind of a dorky ceremony, but it's, it's really about all the other stuff, right? And they had a stressful year and they weren't able to be at school and they also experienced p political stress. And the one thing that could have been a nice, big, warm hug would be a nice, big, warm hug from all their friends saying goodbye. And, you know, I, I realized like, oh yeah, that is important. And that must've been hard. So anyway, uh, but I still stand by my jokes about that I made about graduation you didn't miss anything kids you didn't miss what sucks about graduation at least at least there's that 
about graduation ceremonies, I mean. So anyway, so talking to this uh, woman, I, I, I thought back to um, this time when I had just graduated college and I was living, uh, you know, went to college in Boston and the summer after college, I was uh, living back home with my parents And, uh, or was I? No, I guess I wasn't. It doesn't matter. But I but I graduated college and I wasn't, you know, I graduated college as an acting major. So I went, uh, not being snarky, I straight to a restaurant the next day to apply for a job. And uh, my friend Cheryl was uh, also an acting major. And she was uh, going to stay in Massachusetts and I believe we lost touch years and years ago, but I believe she's in Massachusetts and, and acts locally. And she wanted to build a career in, in Massachusetts. So, you know, again, this is like, I mean, it's 1996, so it's not totally pre-internet, but there's no like looking online for gigs. So, you know, she's got this, uh, I don't know where she got it, if it was like some kind of it wasn't like a backstage magazine, which was a, used to be a magazine you'd go and look for auditions and gigs. I think she got it in maybe some kind of um, like job seeking section of like the Boston Globe or something. I, I don't know. But it, in other words, it was for high school graduates, it's graduating class in a suburb kind of near where my parents and, you know, live. And they were looking for two psychics for the high school graduation party. It was the, uh, you know, everyone stay up all night because you graduated today party that they were having at like the rec center. And it was, it really was this like overnight, you know, big party. And so they had different events for every hour. And looking back at it now, they actually just wanted to hire two tarot card readers, like actual tarot card readers, you know, and, and that kind of, um, event wasn't anything I had ever seen at a party before. And now it's like all that kind of stuff, you know, in the gig economy, all that kind of stuff is totally what you might see at a party. You know, you go to a party and somebody has hired like a massage table and it's like ladies birthday party or, you know, manicures for everybody and people come to the house or yes, someone comes and does an astrology reading or a tarot card reading and, you know, that kind of thing. That, that, that was something I'd never seen before. So when my friend Cheryl said, they're looking for two psychics at this high school graduation party. It didn't even dawn on me that they were looking for actual psychics. Like I was so black and white back then again, because I, well, I was eight, I was, well, I was 21. I graduated college, but I was telling you it was a different world. It was like, I hadn't seen things like that. Like I hadn't seen a manicurist leave the manicure place and go to your house. Like it just things that weren't in the building they're supposed to be in that I swear to God wasn't a thing I had known about. I don't know how else to explain the nineties. And so she's like, so we can go. We we're each going to get paid $75 and it's an acting gig. And I didn't even question. I went, Oh, it's an acting gig. We'll act like psychics. But really what we did was we impersonated tarot card readers and we gave fraudulent readings. Now you might go, Jen, I don't believe in the tarot anyway. It's all bullshit. That's fine. But there is at least a legitimate way to read the cards. You might think it's bullshit, but this card, the two of swords means dot, dot, dot. Well, I didn't know what it meant. I was making shit up. Oh, this means you're going to buy a sword, you know. They weren't getting a real tarot reading, whether you believe or not that, you know, 
So <laughs> I didn't. So I dressed like what I thought a psychic looked like. I dressed like a fucking, you know, fortune teller from like a 1950s. I don't even know what. Caper. I mean, I had like big hoop earrings and like this uh, like shawl. It was like the. I was like, do we need a crystal ball? I almost bought a crystal ball. I just didn't know where to get one, thank God. And uh, Cheryl had some tarot cards, and she split the deck in half, and we split it. I mean, that's not how you do it either. These kids didn't know, you know? They're 18. It's 1996. They know less than I do. But I tapped into one girl, and I think about her all the time. I don't know her name, and I am just, like, dying to know where she is, what she ended up doing with her life. God, can you imagine if she even listens to this podcast? So I see this girl. She's like totally 90s, like Delia's catalog. You know what I'm saying? Kind of got that Janine Garofalo reality bites look. But the thing, it went, she looked like most people looked in the 90s, except at her weird, rich ass high school. She was the only weird kid. And I'd graduated high school four years earlier, and I'd had the privilege of being around other weirdos that wore all black and dressed, you know, the way I'm talking about with the Mary Jane shoes and the, you know, grunge and all that. And so, even though I was in a small percentage of weird dressing kids, I wasn't the only one. And then, of course, that became mainstream. So it was just weird that four years later, she still felt like an outcast when her style had already literally become mainstream. But I I guess her school didn't get the memo. And so she was kind of this like literal outcast, like she was just standing there alone. And, you know, all the other people were signing up before her to get a reading. And after reading like the third jock that was like, is this fucking real? I'm like, yes, it is. I'm a fortune teller. Um, No, I didn't do an accent. I hope I didn't. I don't remember anymore. I knew that her, I knew I could tell by the way she was in line that there was a lot of people before I got to her. And I didn't want her to go anywhere because I wanted to read her. I wanted, I knew I could help her if she needed it. She looked like she needed it. So I called her over uh, to be sort of like, Hey, I'm getting a vibe from you. You need to come here immediately. Just me? I said, yep. I said, everyone, you have to let her go first. I'm getting a vibe, which probably made her life 10 times worse because you're like, oh my God, she's getting a vibe from that weirdo. But, you know, school was over, so she never had to see them again. And I, I don't know. You just get lucky sometimes, right? They say the part of being psychic is just guessing. It's not that crazy to guess that an 18-year-old's grandmother could have died, you know, if her parents are... 40 at the youngest her grandmother could be 60 something i mean it's not crazy maybe 70 so i said uh you're different than everyone else aren't you i mean obviously she's like yes and i was like oh i'm in and i said you you know you're you're probably creative do you write yeah i want it well and i said well you don't think you can be a writer but but you can't you know something like that i said um your grandmother just passed she's like yes and then I felt fucking weird because I was like oh shit I she's like why do you like I I was still like I'm sitting there like doing a psychic reading and not a tarot card reading so I'm kind of like oh and uh, look at this card while I do that you know I'm making it up I'll hold this card the yeah the energy's coming from this card that's the card um the grandmother card oh yeah you know well I don't know what I'm saying 
And she's like, is she coming through you? And I was like, yes, she is. And she says, so I tell her this story. I say, you know, your grandmother always wanted to talk to you about how you were a little different. She's like, she did. And I'm like, yeah, but she didn't know if you knew that you were different or if you thought it was good or bad. So she just never said anything. And she wanted to tell you that she was just like you when she was your age. She was. And I said, yeah, she wanted to be a writer. She did. And I said, yeah, but she couldn't because, you know, how the times were back then. And so, you know, she loved getting married and having kids and having the grandkids, of course, but she had dreams too. And, you know, she didn't want to force it on you or assume things, but she's watching over you and uh, she's giving you great ideas and she's giving you support and she just wants to let you know, you know, I mean, just all this. This girl was like shaking. She was like, thank you so much. Now, I know what I did was technically evil, but I also feel like I helped her. And we don't know. I mean, to this day, I'm like, did I ruin her life? Like, what if she's the worst writer you've ever seen? (laughs) And she should totally be doing like she's a math genius or a biology or a science genius. And she could have cured cancer by now. But she's like, my dead grandmother is guiding me to be a writer. And she writes these short stories like Lucy had a horse and the horse went nay. And everyone's like, um, who is encouraging this girl to write? And she's going to different publishing houses and she's trying to get an agent. And everyone's like, is this a children's book? And she's like, no. And they're like, uh, well, I could see it as a children's book, Lucy and the horse that says nay, but this is terrible. Are you kidding? I think this is the next Wuthering Heights. Well, who gave you this idea? My grandmother. I don't know. And, and now her brilliant cure for cancer isn't being uh, widely circulated in the lab because... She's working part-time at McDonald's and and writing these terrible books. So who knows? Either I changed her life or I ruined it, or probably the most likely scenario, I had no impact at all except for that moment. And then she moved on with herself and enjoyed her life. I don't know. I don't know why I told that story, because I just feel like I just needed to confess But then I realized when we left, I was like, Cheryl, that wasn't an acting gig. They thought we were psychic. And she's like, but that's acting. And I'm like, well, that's more lying. And then, you know, but but again, I had never seen a thing where you go as a psychic to a birthday party. So I was like, I guess they knew what they were getting into. I don't know. It's all kind of hokey anyway, right? But uh, it didn't dawn on me until years later that like, no, actual people that read tarot are freelance and can come to a party. So sorry to the two actual tarot readers um, near Wellesley, Massachusetts that uh, could have gotten that gig. So let's end on this. Speaking of toxic white women like myself, um, I I didn't know who this woman was, but I'm just kind of, I don't really have too much to say on it. And and we're well over the hour mark here, but um, there was this woman named Rachel Hollis. And she was a best-selling author and then became a motivational speaker. And then she built this like massive blockbuster business um, about sharing your authentic self. So I do remember she had this book called Girl, Wash Your Face. And then another one called Girl, Stop Apologizing. And there are these like New York Times bestselling books. And I do remember them doing really well. And like, you know, my book's not being these blockbuster things like hers. And I remember thinking, God, that I did it all wrong. I should have written advice books. I should have done that. I should have done that. Why couldn't I be the girl, wash your face girl? And then I look back and I go, oh, 
fuck am I glad I'm not. Oh, fuck am I glad that everything I have ever done has been under the guise of comedian because that's what I am. I'm not an advice giver. I mean, sure, I might have some tips and funny things that I wrote in some of my books, but, you know, it's also meant to just to be funny. To, you know, um, but I'm like, once you position yourself, because I wasn't as aware of like my privilege and stuff like that as much then as I am today. And I'm just so glad I just have a comedic uh, body of work that I've left behind me and not um, self-help tips that, you know, are really like based on my white experience without being able to say first, this is based on my white experience, you know? So I just like, you know, anyone that's like, oh, look at that person that's doing really well right now. I wish that was me. It's like, you never know. So basically what happened was uh, Rachel Hollis has a company called Rise and it's a self-improvement company and it's a conference for women and it was uh, going to be in Austin, Texas. And uh, there was going to be 100 people live and then like 2,000 to join online. Uh, but, you know, the, she did a virtual event in May 2020 that 50,000 people logged on for. And, and I'm sure they paid as well. So. But in early April, the reason that not as many people were at her May 14th thing was because in early April, the author of Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, Stop Apologizing posted a video to TikTok that jarred her fans. She recounted that she was just kind of speaking extemporaneously during one of her live streams. And in those live streams, she mentioned her twice weekly housekeeper, who she said, quote, cleans the toilets. <laughs> and one commenter said to Rachel Hollis, you are privileged and unrelatable. Now, first of all, I'm like, who needs a housekeeper twice a week? Calm down. I mean, you can clean your house twice a week if you want, but you can do it at least one of those times. Or fine, have it twice a week. I don't fucking know. I don't know how big her house is or how dirty things get in there. But to really like, to not say my housekeeper Doris, you know, to not like name her as a human, or to not say, oh, you know, I'm, I do, you guys, I'm rich. I've got a housekeeper. She comes twice a week. Just say that. We know what she does. But to, to just summarize her job's existence as cleans the toilets, which of course that is part of her job, but like, it's so gross, right? I mean, I don't even have the words for why. It's just, ugh. So someone said, you're privileged and unrelatable. Well, this is where it got worse. She said, no, sis, literally everything I do in my life is to live a life that most people can't relate to. Literally every woman I admire in history was unrelatable. And then she added a caption offering examples, Harriet Tubman, Oprah Winfrey, and others. (laughs) This white woman. Okay. This didn't go over well coming from a white woman who achieved fame in 2015 after posting a bikini photo from Cancun that revealed her pregnancy stretch mark. So I guess there is a famous, uh, let me get this Harriet Tubman quote about unrelatable that I know what this woman thinks she's saying. You know, look it. I don't relate to Stephen Hawking, science genius. 
He's not relatable. He's not like us. But that's not the kind of unrelatable that people are accusing Rachel Hollis of being. She's being, they're, they're talking about she's out of touch with what the average person can afford or lives like. They're not saying you're unrelatable because you're so extraordinary like Harriet Tubman. I mean, you know, the one thing that is, um, I don't even know if it's cool. I'll, I'll be talking about this on one of the bonus episodes of, of Patreon, the, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow ate bread during the uh, lockdown scandal. But um, one thing about Gwyneth Paltrow is she is uh, unrelatable in the sense that um, she doesn't live a down-to-earth life. You know, she's always come from fame and wealth and privilege, and she's literally a white blonde woman, a famous actress, a you know, now she's this lifestyle influencer that just, I have a lot of issues with Goop and some of the stuff they promote. But at the end of the day, her brand is not being relatable. So you can accuse Gwyneth Paltrow of being privileged, rich, out of touch all you want. And her answer could be, that's right. That's my brand. It's aspirational. Not saying it's good or bad, but she is not trying to be something she's not. She's like, here's what I am. You know, she might be catering to other women just like her. But we get what I'm saying, right? With Rachel Hollis, her whole thing was, I'm just like you. you know, here's my stretch marks in Cancun. I know I'm, I'm, I'm just had a baby and I don't give a shit. I'm showing my stretch marks. I mean, I get. So you can't really say that you're trying to be unrelatable. You can't say, well, I don't care. I'm 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 not trying to be average. It's like, but. But you are because you posted that thing and, and that's been your brand has been like, I'm just like you, but we all aspire. And that's fine if you want to change your brand, but you can't be like, um, I've always been that. like, and, and also just Harriet Tubman, honey. Some people had already felt betrayed by her and her husband, her business partner, Dave Hollis, um, they were close collaborators on daily, intimate, family-focused content. And then they announced last spring they were getting a divorce and people were like, how could you? Now that, I'm like, come on. You know, marriages end. It doesn't mean that they didn't have good family-friendly content. I mean, never looked at a damn thing they posted. But you can't say their whole life was a lie. And even if it was, like, whatever, you know, just at that one, I'm just like, you can't fault someone for that. But uh, Louisa Duran, who is an anti-racism and anti-oppression educator, uh, did an Instagram live dissection of Rachel Hollis's TikTok post and said reducing a domestic worker to someone who cleans the toilet was the most disgusting, capitalistic, privileged flex that was so quick. But it said so much about how she as a human being views the power dynamic and the social hierarchy. Uh, Rachel Hollis declined to comment for this article that I'm reading to you from the New York Times. She did issue an apology and blamed her team for the slowness in addressing the manner and then said, I know I have disappointed so many people, myself included, and I take full accountability. She lost about 100,000 Instagram followers. She canceled an upcoming personal development seminar on YouTube. Her company, which also offers podcast life coaching and inspirational products, postponed the May conference until Labor Day. So there you go. 
Now, I didn't realize this about her. Uh, her memoir, which was, you know, a blend of memoir and self-help, was published by a Christian imprint of the HarperCollins Book Company. So, you know, one of the things uh, she writes in the introduction of Girl, Wash Your Faces, I absolutely refuse to watch you wallow. I want to shout at the top of my lungs until you know this one great truth. You are in control of your own life. Now, that is a fine message to other privileged rich people. Telling them not not to wallow, they've got more control than they think. But then you go, is that everyone who's reading the book, though? How many people are reading it not even realizing that there's this unrealistic un, uh, expectation that people like her put out in the world, that we have all this control, and that control's even a good thing. Not taking into account, like, systemic issues or even your own mental health that may get in the way of you not wallowing. You know, it's just like, ah, it's too hard. It's too hard to, uh, it's, 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 you, you gotta be, oh man, I am so glad. I am so glad that, uh, I never got caught up in that kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know how to put it, but there was a time when it was like, if you're a white woman of a certain age, like you get out there with your lifestyle shit. And I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> Not that I was going to. I don't know. I just, this seems awful. This just seems awful. Um, but, but there is something about this kind of thing being exposed, right? That's like, Who who is everyone following? Who is everyone looking to? And are you spacing it out enough? Do you maybe get a little from here, a little from there, a little from that? You know, do you have a life guru? And is it a wealthy white CEO of a life branding company? Like maybe that's not the best bet. And you could go, Jen, look at you. Well, I'm not trying to be anyone's guru. I'm a fucking podcast hoster. I just want to entertain you while you do the dishes. Want you to look up to me for anything? Um, well, I, the only thing I'd want you to look up to me for is uh, normalizing discussions around anxiety, and uh, I don't know, just having a sense of humor about how we are continually fucking up and grading ourselves based on like visions of who we thought we'd be when we were younger, and still letting that like part of our brain control, you know what we know better that life actually isn't, you know, whatever. I mean, the basic thing is if you look up to me, that's great. But I hope what you look up to is that I don't fucking know anything and I'm not afraid to say it. And that like, I encourage everyone to find their own way and to uh, think of others. I mean, th- that like, I don't want any, I don't want any part of that shit. You know what I'm saying? Um. Anyway, I'm just fascinated. Like, what do you do after that? I mean, I guess you just have enough money to live on after that. There'll be plenty of people that still love her, you know. But this is kind of cool. A woman wrote a novel, My Life with the Mogul, about a young woman whose idealism is crushed by the experience of working for a personal development celebrity. Um, The gulf between Rachel Hollis' online persona and Rachel Hollis' boss grew increasingly wide, the employees said. The bubbly woman who appeared weekday mornings on Start Today was not the one who arrived at the office hours later. She would go from being silly and talking about peeing in her pants to walking into the office in sunglasses and not saying hello to everyone. Oh, my God. 
I would totally watch like a Devil Wears Prada movie about this kind of person. I'm sure this woman's book, uh, My Life with the Mogul, is already being, uh, you know, optioned for a TV series or a movie. But I hope it gets made. I need to watch something like that right now. There's probably like five movies like that already. But, you know, this was, what is it, last year that like Tony Robbins came out with this documentary and he's such a fraud. I've never liked Tony Robbins. And everyone was like, oh, man, it's amazing. I'm like, it's not amazing. I'm so glad he got called out for being the creep and perv and freak show that he is. At her company leadership in uh, early 2020, Rachel Hollis said to her staff, I am so rich I could just retire to Hawaii and never work a day again. That's how wealthy I am. Her point, they said, though, was to illustrate how much she loves her job. Now, isn't that interesting that we talked about that earlier in the podcast? What is your dollar amount that you do retire to Hawaii and never work a day again? I don't love anything enough to keep doing it for free. No, I guess I do. I say that, but who knows how I'd actually feel. But uh, I wonder, I wonder what her dollar amount's going to be now. Like, what, does she get to keep all the money she had? Does, it, does she pay off some lawsuits? or something? I don't know. She lose something. If you're out there, Rachel, email me. I seem fun at gmail.com. Tell me what's up, girl. <laughs> anyway. Oh, man. Everyone out there. White women, stop comparing yourselves to Harriet Tubman. Everyone else. I'm trying to keep my white people in check. I'm trying to do my part. Whew. A lot of work to do out there, everybody. Thank you for sticking with me through the weirdest episode ever. I, I, I have to tell you guys that even listening to the episodes and downloading them is a great and amazing way to support me. And if that's how you choose to support me, it's fucking awesome. So thank you. And we'll see you next week. And until next week, have fun.